Jesus the name. Jesus the name above every other name. Jesus the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you.
that it all depends on you because if it all depended on us if it all depended on me I'd be lost I'd be lost and hopeless and so thank you that it rests upon eternal shoulders stronger than we could imagine and we can rest in that knowledge rest in that peace we thank you Lord for the blood of Christ that makes that freedom possible in Jesus name amen Oh, that's fine. Oh, yeah, you have to take it. That's right. Can I take some for you? Or you got no, I think I'm good. Once I shut okay. that off, I'm good. Okay. Just so you don't have that blinking in your face the whole time. All right, guys. Thank you, Amy. That was good. I, man, I didn't realize how much I missed that uh, live worship on Wednesday. It was awesome. All right, so guys, what happened is uh, Sylvia uh, graciously offered to teach my class today, and we were the kids are switching to Genesis, and uh, I was going to pull up a video, and I thought, man, I know Genesis, so I'm going to get up there and and uh, go over with you. So we're just going to start. We're just going to do Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. So just the very beginning of that, and uh, let's pray, and then we'll get uh, jump in here. 
Heavenly Father, we just ask for your uh, guidance right now, your direction, your spirit, Lord. Thank you for that great time of worship, and we just ask for your blessing upon the kids right now as they're getting uh, taught and learning and uh, worshiping you and growing in you, Lord, and we just thank you so much for that. We ask for your blessing upon just every person in this building right now, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so the Bible, as you guys know, is the most important book ever written, right? It goes uncontested as the book that has had the greatest influence on history out of any other book produced ever. And as you know, the Bible is actually a collection of our comp compilation of 66 books, right? With the book of Genesis being the foundational building block of all of God's word. And so if we, were, if we remove Genesis from the Bible, we'd be removing the foundation of all of God's word. And without it, the rest of God's word would have no foundation. It, it would have no support. In the book of Genesis, God tells us the origin of everything, all things. The, so the meaning to everything God covers in Genesis. The word Genesis is a Greek word meaning the Greek word meaning origin, that, the word Genesis. The Hebrew word is Rashith, and it means beginning. And so in the book of Genesis, we are given the beginning or the origin of the universe, the origin of order, the origin of the solar system, the origin of the atmosphere, the origin of life, the origin of man, the origin of marriage, the origin of evil, the origin of language, the origin of government, the origin of culture, the origin of nations, the origin of religion, and the origin of God's chosen people. So what is the New Testament all about? It's about Jesus, right? We know that. It's about God's provision for man's sin. It's about salvation of man by God's grace, right? It's about the restoration of man's relationship with God. But without Genesis, the New Testament is about God's provision for what? We, don't, we need Genesis to tell us that. It's about God saving man from what? We need Genesis, right? It's about God restoring our relationship back to what? And so if Jesus is the answer, then Genesis poses the question. If Jesus is the remedy, then Genesis is the diagnosis. What, what good is the answer when you don't know the question, right? What good is a medication if you don't know you're sick? So the book of Genesis, it's crucial in our understanding of the rest of God's word. It's a very, very important book, and it's an amazing book. It has 50 chapters, and it covers the first 2,600 years of human existence. And, uh, and so just how did God bring this foundational book of his word to us? And when did he bring it to us? Well, the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt took place back in 1445 B.C., the book of Genesis was written shortly after that, so it was somewhere between 1445 and 1405. So that's about 2,600 years after the events that took place here in chapter 1. So if this book was written 2,600 years after the first recorded events, who wrote it and how did they write it? Well, in Romans chapter 10, Paul attributes the writer of Genesis to Moses, and in John chapter 9, Jesus attributes the arriving of the law, which is in Genesis, to Moses. Timothy tells us that all scripture is inspired by God. And so we know God, through his Holy Spirit, inspired men to write down his word. Moses was the one that God used to write the first five books of the Pentateuch, or the Old Testament. 
And those first five books are referred to as the Torah or the law. And so when Jesus refers to the law and the prophets and the Psalms, the law, when he says the law, it refers to the books of Moses, these first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? In the beginning of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, we see Moses being born. So how did Moses write Genesis if he wasn't even born yet? Well, there are three possibilities how Moses received and transmitted the book of Genesis to us. And the first being that he received it all by direct revelation from God, either through audible words that God just dictated to him and he wrote it down, or else by visions giving to him about these great events in the past and which then he put down in his own words as guided by the Holy Spirit. So that's the first possibility. The second possibility is that he received it by oral traditions passed down over the centuries from father to son, which then he collected and pinned down and guided by the Holy Spirit. You know, this is the grandpa telling the story to the son and the grandson and so on. The third possibility is that he took actual written records of the past and he assembled them or put them together in the final form, again, guided by the Holy Spirit. And this is what is most likely happened. You know, visions and revelations from the Lord, they usually have to do with the future, as we see like in Daniel and Ezekiel and the book of Revelation. Also, when uh, we see God directly dictating, it's generally concerning specific laws and ordinances, such as the Ten Commandments uh, and the book of Leviticus. However, the book of Genesis is written in the form of a narrative, like we see Kings and Chronicles, the book of Acts all which the writer either collected previous documents and edited them, to get, edited them together, or they recorded the events which they had seen themselves or had gotten directly from eyewitnesses. If this were the case and Moses compiled these documents from the past, they would have been written by the patriarchs, starting with, starting with Adam going down the line, so forth, probably etched in stone in order to be preserved. There, uh, there is some evidence uh, of this written within the text. Eleven times in the book of Genesis, we see the word toldoth, meaning the generations of. Eleven divisions in the book of Genesis, beginning with these words. These are the generations of. The generations of Adam, and then the generations of Noah, and all the way to the generations of Jacob. So this was the most likely method. In other words, Adam wrote down his part, and then Noah wrote down his part, and so on. And then Moses compiled these documents together into the book of Genesis. But no matter how Moses received and transmitted this text to us, we know that it was under the inspiration of God, right? According to 2 Timothy 3.16. So Genesis is split into two major sections. The first 11 chapters are about God dealing with the whole world, about God dealing with all the nations. The remaining 39 chapters uh, deal specifically with God's chosen people and the beginning of the nation of Israel. And so are you guys ready to dive in? We're not going to get too far. We're going to go two verses in, but we're going to go a little deep here. In the beginning, Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, <clears throat> you and I, we know that scriptures are full of all sorts of miraculous events, right? Jonah surviving three days in the belly of the fish, uh, God parting the Red Sea and allowing the Israelites to cross on dry land and then closing it up on the Egyptian army, 
Of course, some scoffers say it was, oh, it was only three inches of water the Israelites crossed in, uh, in which the miracle is even more astounding. God drowning the whole Egyptian army in three inches of water. I mean, could you, could you, what would that look like? These guys all face down in the water, right? Three inches of water. But the Bible's full of miracles, right? Jesus multiplying the bread, walking on water, healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, bringing people back to life from the dead. All very miraculous events. Uh, events that are hard for the world to believe. Events that even some liberal Bible scholars try to explain away. The Bible is full of miraculous events. Miraculous events that pale in comparison. Miraculous events that are nothing compared to this very first foundational verse in all of God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created everything. I mean, think about that. God created everything. Every molecule, every atom, God made it. When you get down to the tiny building blocks of everything, it's the molecules, the molecular structure, structure, and those molecules, they're made out of atoms, atomic structure, and who knows, it may even go smaller than that. We just haven't discovered it yet. So if God made everything, every molecule on this earth, every molecule in the solar system, every molecule in this universe, and every physical law that these molecules, that these elements follow, if God made it all and designed it all, how hard would it be for God to manipulate those molecules, right? How hard would it be for God to influence those elements? It would be nothing for God, right? He made it all. In the beginning, God created everything. And so if that's the case, who's in charge? Who's the boss? Who calls the shots? Who makes the rules? If God created it all, who owns it? Well, he does, right? God made it. God owns it. He calls the shots. So then if we believe this very foundational verse of the Bible, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and therefore God has total power and total control over it, and God owns the right to call the shots, if we believe that, what is there in Scripture that we cannot believe? Right? What can't we believe? That God can't make an air pocket in the fish for Jonah to breathe? That God can't make water solid enough to walk on? To stand up on end for the Israelites to cross through? My refrigerator makes, solid water, makes water solid, the ice maker. I'm not saying God froze this necessarily, but nonetheless, is my refrigerator more powerful than God? You know, what can't we believe? That God can't heal an illness or a defect in the human body? I mean, my doctor helps heal the body. Is my doctor more powerful than God? God forbid. I hope not. Not to take away from miracles. I mean, we call them miracles, miraculous events for a reason because man can't do it. Or that it just wouldn't happen by natural forces in this world. So to us, a, miracular, a miracle, it's astounding, right? It's amazing. But to God, the almighty creator of the universe, to perform a miracle, it's simple, it's easy, it's nothing for him. He just has to say the word, think the thought, and that's it. In the beginning, God, and the word God here is Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. So God, in the Hebrew, this word is Elohim. The I am at the end, it marks this as a plural word for the Hebrew. The same word, Elohim, is translated gods, plural, 
with a lowercase g in scripture when referring to the false gods of the heathens. But here, the context is clearly singular when referring to Almighty God, creator of the universe. And as it is used over 2,000 more times in scripture, Elohim is a plural name with a singular meaning. God is one God in three persons. So the fourth word listed in the Bible is already beginning to establish this awesome truth about God, the Trinity, right? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The very fourth word is already revealing this triune nature about God to us. Genesis 1-1 again. In the beginning, God created. Bara is the word. The heavens and the earth. This word bara is only used in conjunction with God. And it means to create something from nothing. Only God can create things from nothing. You know, we can form and we can shape things, but we're just changing it. You know, many years ago, my son Parker, uh, for school, he's building this big catapult to launch. He had to launch a cabbage with it. And so we went down to Lowe's and we purchased a bunch of lumber, a big garage door spring, some PVC pipe, and uh, probably a first aid kit. It's kind of a dangerous situation. And, uh, but, you know, the lumber, it was cut out of a tree, right? The spring was made from steel that was ored out of the ground. The PVC is made out of chemicals, I guess. And we're just fitting it all together to produce this throwing mechanism. Again, just changing its form, not creating it. But God created the heavens and the earth from nothing. God made the raw materials to form everything out of. So in the be Genesis 1-1 again, in the beginning, God created the heavens, Shamayim, and the earth, Eretz. So Shamayim, again, ending in I-M, which means it's plural in Hebrew. So the heavens is not referring to just the heavens, plural, is not referring to just the place where God resides. But it may include, Paul said he was caught up into the third heaven, the place where God resides. You remember that? The first heaven that we talked about in scripture is our atmosphere. It's where the birds fly. When, God, when, the, when the Bible says the first heaven, that's the air, where airplanes and birds are. The second heaven refers to outer space, where the planets, the stars are. The third heaven is this other realm, the spiritual place where God resides. But in this context, it's referring to space in the concept, the concept of space. So space or an area. Right now, and you, you guys, we're all in a chair, and we have, we have like a personal space, right? And if someone like puts their arm or their hand in, in your space uninvited, it gets a little uncomfortable, right? Or if someone gets too close to your face when they're talking to you, and, uh, and you know, it could just get uncomfortable. We, you know, we call that our personal space. You're like, you know, back off, guy. You know, give me a little space here. Have a mint or a piece of gum, you know? And uh, so together, we're in the space of this room, right? In our room, and the kids' rooms back here, and the foyer, and all of this together is in the space of this building which is in the space or the area of the city of Stockbridge. And, or, and it's in this area of Henry County. And it's in the state of Georgia. And it's in the Southeast region. And it's in the United States, the North American continent, the North Northern Hem Hemisphere on planet Earth in the solar system. 
our solar system, the Milky Way, which is a star, right? The sun with the nine planets, or eight, or however, whatever they're calling planets now. And there's 100 to 300 billion stars in our galaxy, they estimate, in the Milky Way galaxy. And aston astronomers believe there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe. There's 8,479 galaxies visible from Earth. So space, not just outer space, but space, a place to put all this physical material. So that's what God created, this space. Like think of like a box, right? It's just this big container that he created. It's a place, it's a place to put everything, it's space. So God created the space to hold all of these galaxies and then God created mass, which is the raw material. It's the earth. It's not talking about planet earth here. It's talking about earth like dirt, right? When you, when you talk about digging into the earth, dirt, terra, molecules, elements, the, the atomic structure to form all of the stars and planets out of, to form everything out of. That's what God's talking about. And so when did God do this? We're told in the beginning he did this. So God created, because it says in the beginning, we're told that God created time also, right? The concept of time. And so what he's saying here in Genesis 1-1 is we exist in a space-mass-time continuum, which constitutes the physical universe. Space is the area that everything's in. Mass is the stuff, the material, and time is, you know, this progression that it goes through. So God created all three of these concepts in this very verse first. So we could, we could actually paraphrase verse one as, at the beginning of time, God created all physical space and all physical matter. That's what, that's what Genesis 1-1 is saying. God created at the beginning of time, he created time, all physical space and all physical matter. Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the 19th century, with the popularity of Darwin's theories of evolution and the concept of uh, vast amounts of time needed to support this theory, and so uh, we got the claiming of different layers in the Earth's crust to represent different geological ages, right? Each taking millions or billions of years to develop. As we'll see when we get to Genesis chapter 6, Noah's worldwide flood is responsible for all the layers and all the fossils. If you take a jar and fill it with dirt and fill it with water and then water, and not don't fill it all the way with dirt, but halfway with dirt, the rest of the way with water, shake it up, that dirt will settle in layers. That's just what happens. The heaviest, the heaviest parts Particles go to the bottom first, and it'll settle down in layers. The lightest stuff just floats the longest and finally comes down. And you'll see lines in that dirt, the layers. Now, if you add every animal on the surface of the earth that had just drowned and mix that in from the flood and mix that into all of this water and all this dirt that's just churning and everything, uh, and you have all of that water pressure on top of those layers of dirt and the, and the animals are going to be mixed in, 
it's going to create fossils. That's how fossils are created. Fossils aren't created. If something just dies and lays on the ground, it doesn't make a fossil. Things come over and eat it, drag it away, it rots away. It, 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 has to have, it has to be buried quickly, and it has to have pressure, weight on top of it to create a fossil. So these, uh, the science points to the Bible. But the problem is, if you admit that there's a God, then you have to acknowledge that he rules over the earth as a judge. And so if you refuse to admit that there's a creator, a designer, you have to assume that the world made itself. There's no other, either somebody made it or it made itself. And, uh, and something, I mean, for something to be so designed so amazingly, for this to happen on its own just by random chance and accident, it, that's gonna have to take some time, a lot of time. And as we see, the further, you've just seen over the years, the, the deeper they dig in and see how complicated we are with DNA stuff they didn't know about years ago, they just have to keep pushing back the time because it's too complicated. They're like, no, you know, all this takes millions of years. First it was millions of years. Now we're in billions of years and tens of billions of years. It just, it's, it's com more complicated it gets. It's not getting more complicated, but the more we discover how complicated it is, the more it points to design, and so the harder it is for that to actually happen on its own, it's just impossible, and they have to just keep pushing the odds out, I mean, for forever. And it, it's just so obvious that, that it's designed by God. So to try to fit this, the Bible in with this huge amount of time that evolution needs, uh, many years ago, a Scottish theologian named Thomas Chalmers pushed this idea of this vast time span taking place between Genesis verse 1-1 and verse 2 here in, the, in Genesis and is widely known as the gap theory. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that. And it was popularized in the Schofield Reference Bible. Uh, the gap theory proposes that God created the world billions of years ago and then destroyed it because of Satan's sin and uh, in this, catas this catastrophic destruction, left it without form and void. Then God recre recreated the world and everything uh, in it during six literal days of creation. And the idea here was the evolutionist community could insert however many billions of years they wanted, and it would fit into this gap that they try to make between verses 1 and 2. You know, and I see what he, they're trying to do. Uh, and it sounds great at first, but there's major problems with this. The first being evolutionists do not accept it because this idea ends in great, great cataclysmic event, which is not consistent with their geological layers. Secondly, and more importantly, it contradicts God's word, for he says all death came through Adam. So this pre-Adamite world would have been filled with suffering and death in order to make the fossils work in the geological column. Secondly, this pre-Adamite world, in theory, was destroyed because of Satan's sin. So that means the almighty God of love and order would have been solely responsible for the millions of years of suffering, disease, and death to make this fossil record fit, which is totally inconsistent with God's nature. So implications made of God's nature by the gap theory, they are heretical. It's heresy, it's blasphemy against God. To, to teach this theory, to push this theory. So what does, verses, what does verse 2 really mean? 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. The earth, remember, this is we're not talking about planet earth. We're talking about dirt, matter, raw material. So look at it that way. The raw material was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. This was the raw material. It had not been formed into anything yet. So it was void. It was empty of inhabitants. It was empty of life. It was empty of energy. God had not created physical light yet. So it was dark. Over the whole face or the presence of this raw material, over the depth of it, and which we're told it was sort of a watery mix. It says it was, he was over the water. Look at what 2 Peter chapter 3 says. He's speaking this prophecy about our time. Right now, these days, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in these last days with scoffering, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? In other words, where's Jesus? Why, why didn't he come back yet? You Christians have been saying this for 2,000 years. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So the earth was formed out of water, and then it was destroyed in Noah's day with water. But next time, we're told it's going to be destroyed with fire, right? And Peter reminds us that God will pronounce his judgment upon this world once more, but because his will is that none should perish... He's holding out as long as possible. So God is long-suffering. He's patient. He's so gracious, right? Okay, so God, at the beginning of time, remember, he's outside of time. He, did, he created this box with time and the material in it. So he creates this physical universe. Part of it is time. Part of it is the space, the area to hold the physical and, of course, part of it's the matter, the raw material, the elements. So, and, and we're told it was some sort of watery substance, all this, all this raw material. And there's no form to it yet. It's empty. It's empty of life. It's empty of energy. It's dark. There's no physical light yet. God is spiritual light, but there's no physical life. So what does it take to produce physical light, like our light bulbs? And what does it take... Uh, for the planets to hold together in a ball. We call it gravity. But what does it take to have gravitational pull uh, for the planets to you know, go around each other? What does it take for the Earth to have a magnetic field? What does it take for the sun to produce light and to produce heat? Well, it takes energy. We call that energy, right? But for the universe, this far, it's empty. It was just raw material. There was no energy. So what happens in verse 2? Look at this again. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God. 
Again, God establishing his triune nature. The second time in this first sentence of his written word. He's talked about the Trinity twice already in one sentence, first sentence. And what is the Spirit of God doing? He is moving, some say, some versions, or hovering. And this word moving is rakaf in Hebrew. And it's used only two other times in the Old Testament. It's used in Jeremiah 23, 9. And it's translated to shake or to tremble. And in Deuteronomy 32, 11, and it's translated to hover or fluttereth. Henry Morris states that in modern science terminology, the translation would probably be vibrated. Everything in this physical universe runs on energy, right? It holds the planets together. It causes them to rotate and revolve around the sun. It takes energy to produce light and heat. It takes energy to grow things, things that other things like us consume. We eat these things like we just ate pizza, and we convert our bodies convert that into energy. It takes that energy and converts it into energies for ourselves so we can grow and stay alive. Well, where did all that energy come from? How did this raw material get energized? By the supreme energizer, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. He was moving or hovering or shaking or trembling or fluttering or vibrating, whatever you want to call it. He was energizing the raw material. There's another moving of the Holy Spirit that we see in Scripture. And we find this in 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Just as the Holy Spirit energized the entire universe, in that same way, the Holy Spirit empowers us, his children. Here's what I want you to take home from this, guys. The almighty, all-powerful God, creator of this universe and all it contains, who created it out of nothing, he just willed it. He spoke it into existence. The God whose spirit energized the entire universe with his energy, this same God who allows, he's the same God that allows us to call him Father. Right? This same God, this is the same God who refers to us as sons, as his own children. Our God, our Father, has made his infinite resources freely available to us, to his children, through his Holy Spirit, who will move within us. He will move with us, we're told. He will move in us, and he will move upon us, we're told in Scripture. Moving, energizing, empowering, we like to call it. Empowering us to live for him. You might be thinking, well, yeah, that sounds great, Rob. I, I know God is powerful and big and he's so huge and so perfect and so righteous. He's so holy. But I am so weak and so small and so imperfect and so unrighteous and so unholy. Like the opposite. I'm the opposite of God. Why would he want to be my dad? You know, why would he want to claim me as his son, adopt me as his son or his daughter? Why would he want to empower me with his spirit? I mean, 
I certainly wouldn't want to adopt someone like someone like me and give them full access to all my resources, right? But you know, it's because he loves us, right? He loves us. And we might think, well, what does that mean, right? I mean, we say things like, I love ice cream. That doesn't mean I want to adopt it, right? So God created this universe that's bigger than my mind can comprehend out of molecules that are smaller than my mind can comprehend. And all of this incredible design and work and effort and energy, he did it for me and for you. He did it for us. And that sounds great, right? But sometimes it can be hard to believe. You know, have you ever come across that? I mean, how do we know that God really loves us that much? How do I know God loves me? How do you know that God loves you? Well, he tells us, right? The most famous verse in scripture, we all know this. For God, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, that means the people of the world, not the, God doesn't want to get rid of people and keep the dirt. He can just make new dirt. It's he loves the people, he loves us, that he gave his only son that whoever, that's why we know it's a who, it's a people, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. I mean, that's an amazing point. If Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it, we shouldn't be condemning it, right? In order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, praise God. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So that's how you know, that's how I know, that's how we know that God loves us. He sacrificed his life for you and me. He sat in the electric, today he'll be like the electric chair. He sat in the electric chair for us while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemy. He gave himself for us. So God didn't just say he loved us and loved you, right? He proved it, he proved it by what he did. All right, let's pray, and then we can do some questions after everyone. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for loving us and dying for us. And, Lord, how amazing you are in creating this amazing universe, Lord. And, Father, I just ask that you help us uh, to have that your desire. Your, it says your desire is that none would perish, none, not one, that all would come to repentance, Lord. And so, Lord, help us to have that desire. Help us to, uh, sometimes that's hard for us, Lord. And uh, you can see past all the, the mess and the sin. And, Lord, we, sometimes it's so hard for us to do that. So, Father, help us to see past that. Help, like you, help us to see the people like you see people. Love people like love, you, you love people, Lord. And not condemn people like you not condemn them. But love on them and share your word with them. And so, Lord, we just thank you. We ask for your spirit. And we just ask for your blessing. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. We got those songs. They're back there singing with the kids.